The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for information, advice, news, and techniques. You need to make your very first investment in real estate or grow your business to bigger and better things. And today on Real Life Real Estate, as is the case on the last Wednesday of nearly every month, we are doing question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means that any question you have was one that is uh, one I will at least attempt to answer and answer correctly. So whether it's about finding financing, finding deals, managing rentals, doing rehabs, whatever you'd like to talk about, we can certainly talk about that today. The way to get your question here into the studio is by calling 877-772-9658-877-772-9658 or sending the question to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. And uh, make sure you do that before about 6.45 or 5.45 because uh, we very often have delays in the email here in the studio and I go home and find that there's two or three people who had very important questions they wanted to ask that we just simply did not receive. So again, 877-772-9658 is the way to call and then we know you're on the phone and we can answer the question right away or you can send it to askvina at gmail.com. Normally at this point I would be making some announcements regarding local real estate investors associations Association meetings. However, this week we are uh, in a situation where uh, next week is 4th of July week. So the Cincinnati RIA meeting that would normally be held on the 3rd has been canceled. The next meeting will be on July 17th and it will be a networking picnic for anybody who wants to come and meet some of your fellow real estate investors. Um, So enjoy your 4th of July week. Go out and find some deals, but don't show up at Cincinnati, Rhea, because you'll be the only one there. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We had a few questions that were sent in ahead of the show. And uh, if you're wondering how these folks miraculously managed that, the answer is that they uh, are receiving our weekly Real Life Real Estate e-letter, which 
always contains information about the upcoming program, uh, including contact information for mailing in questions ahead of time, and also an article of use to you as a real estate investor. You can also subscribe to that e-letter simply by going to askvena.com, that's A-S-K-V-E-N-A.com, and filling out the little response form at the top of the page. From then on, you will receive every single week information from Real Life Real Estate Investing about the upcoming programs, other events going on in the real estate world, and of course, the Real Life Real Estate article. A question here from Fred, who lives in California. He says, uh, I have a few questions relating to private lending and hard money lending. Is there a difference between private lending and hard money lending? I hear a lot of people toss out those terms interchangeably. I'd like to structure an LLC with a friend for the purpose of lending to investors who are flipping houses. Do you know if I need a license for this, i.e. a real estate broker's or California finance license? Everyone I talk to seems to have different answers about this. Well, let me ask you answer your second question first, Fred, uh, because the the reason that you are getting different answers from different people about whether or not a mortgage license would be required, you would not be required to have a real estate broker's license, you would be required to have some sort of a mortgage license, is because the answer to that question varies depending on the state you are in. And you have to remember that when you cross state lines, when when you're in California and you are loaning money to a rehabber in Nevada, in all probability, you would have to be following Nevada's laws, not California's laws. So the the uh, answer to your question is going to lie in you calling the state and finding out. And the specific question that you want to ask them is, is it necessary for me to have a mortgage originator's license of some sort in order to make loans to non-occupant owners? In other words, to make loans to other investors. In many states, the rules are very different. If you are making a loan to someone who is going to live in the house versus making a loan to someone who is not going to live in the house. The second, which is what you want to do, uh, tends to be much less over-regulated than the first. There's many more rules in place generally if you're loaning to homeowners than if you are loaning to investors. And then you would need to ask that question of the Department of Commerce in every state in which you intended to do business, because you may find that in California you do not need a license, although that would surprise me a lot. Because in, in California, you need a license to give people a shopping bag at the grocery store. And yet in an adjoining state, maybe you do need a license. So call your Department of Commerce and the specific question that you need to ask is, do I need a license to loan private money? You're not brokering it to loan to loan my money that my company has to other investors. Now, your first question, uh, which I just did, which is, is there a difference between private lending and hard money lending? Because people toss out the words interchangeably, and I just did that. Uh, yes and no. Um, in the in the you're, you're correct in the in the in the lexicon and conversation that happens on a day to day basis between real estate investors. Uh, it is very much the case that uh, people do often say hard money when they mean private money or private money when they mean hard money. In my own mind, 
and and I think if you ask most people to really set out the difference for you. There is a difference between private lenders and hard money lenders. Private lenders tend to be people who are loaning their own money or money from their retirement funds with the goal of receiving a passive income and who are not in the business of doing that. So maybe they have $50,000 and they loan that out when they get it back to investors they know or investors who approach them and convince them to do that. Hard money lenders are in the business of loaning money. Now, what's the difference? A, a, a hard money lender is typically going to have very hard and fast rules. They might have two or three different programs that they use. They might have one program if your credit score is over 800 and one if it's over 750 and one if it's over 700. But within those program, there's no real negotiation with the hard money lenders because they are sort of like banks in that they have the money and they set out the rules. Uh, hard money lenders tend to do a lot more due diligence on their borrowers. They will do appraisals on the properties. They will do uh, credit reports on the borrowers. They will want to see uh, tax returns, W-2s, all of that sort of thing from the borrowers. They are concerned about uh, typically the borrower's level of experience. Like how many deals have you done? Is this your first deal? I don't think I want to get involved in your first deal. Hard money lenders also just sort of attitudinally and philosophically uh, are much less concerned about having to take a property back. They, they, it's, it's sort of a course of business to them if, if, a, if a loan goes bad and they, they, they've got attorneys who understand the foreclosure process and will go through that if, that, if, if the loan goes bad and it comes down to that. Private lenders tend to be much more risk averse and they do not, like the idea of taking back a property sort of horrifies the typical private lender. They want to put money back, they want to put money out and they want to get money back in the ma- mailbox every month on the due date and then get paid back on time you know private lenders are or hard money lenders are you know much much more sort of uh, of the opinion that hey you know what if i have to take this property back for what i have in it and i and i know how much i have in it in, in terms of the value because i've done an appraisal and i'm super experienced and i wouldn't mind buying it and rehabbing it or taking it back and rehabbing it myself hard money lenders tend to get much higher rates of interest than private lenders do. And hard money lenders uh, charge points, typically up front. Hard money lenders often have application fees because there is an application. It sounds to me from the nature of your question that what you want to do is be a hard money lender. And let me say that before you jump, uh, jump into that, uh, you might want to do a bunch of research and put together a bunch of systems and paperwork about how that is done because successful hard money lenders have a process that they put everybody through and the people who don't want to do the process don't get loans and the people who don't want to pay the upfront money for the application fee, the hard money lenders won't do any work on that property because you know half the time the loans never consummate anyway. Uh, so there's some good courses out there about that. Um, there's you're going to need a, an attorney on your team. You're going to need a title agent on your team. And you also might want to go back into the Real Life Real Estate Archives on iTunes and pick out the uh, show that we did with uh, Hard Money Bankers, uh, which I think was maybe a year or two years ago, and listen to what they have to say because they are doing 
what it is I believe you want to do. And they gave a lot of explanation about how hard money loans work and how the process works and so on. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means uh, any question that you have, we're happy to try and tackle it here. You can phone your question in at 877-772-9658, or you can send it as Fred from California did via email. The email address is askvina at gmail.com. Again, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. We will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. That happens on the last Wednesday of every month. If you're listening to us on the podcast and saying, wow, how did I miss that again? Here's the secret. You need to tune in on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on WMKVFM.org when we are broadcasting live from WMKV and WLHS here in the greater Cincinnati area. You might notice that we have a lot of calls and questions from places other than the southern Ohio area. That's because we have a national listenership here that we very much appreciate. And uh, you do need to tell us when you ask your questions where you're from. Because if Fred had said, I'm in Ohio, I could have been much more specific about the answer to his question. It does sometimes matter where you're writing from. So send us a question, askvina at gmail.com or 877-772-9658. Uh, I have a question here from Michael, who does not say where he is from, but in this particular case, he's asking a question that is a matter of federal law, so uh, that's okay this time, Michael, not next time, though. He says, I know that investing in an IRA with my parent or child is generally a prohibited transaction, but that teaming up with my sibling is not generally prohibited. What about teaming up with my IRA, teaming up my IRA with my HSA? Is it generally prohibited like co-investing with a parent or child, or is it generally okay like co-investing with a sibling? Now, Michael, I'm going to take a second and sort of orient everybody else about the question that you're asking here. You understand it. I understand it. But there's, man, there's a lot of acronyms in here. Uh, Michael is referring to the fact that with a self-directed IRA, one can invest in real estate, tax liens, notes, mortgages, make private loans, those sorts of things. Uh, A lot of people are not aware of that because they have something that their bank is calling a self-directed IRA. But when they call the bank and say, can I do this? The bank says, oh, no, you can't do that. A true self-directed IRA allows you to direct the IRA custodian to invest in any investment that the IRS has not disallowed. And that does include real estate and real estate related assets. However, there are some people out there that you cannot team up with in terms of your IRA. So uh, you can't um, you can't buy a house in your self-directed IRA and then let your child live in it. You can't uh, buy a house or, or, or ha- your, your uh, mother can't buy a house in a self-directed IRA and then pay you to manage it. This list of people who are disallowed to your IRA are called prohibited parties. Michael's question is whether his own self-directed health savings account 
is a disallowed party to his self-directed IRA. Now, he would absolutely be a prohibited party to his own self-directed IRA. So the question is, well, you know, my HSA isn't me, although I am the beneficiary of both. Can I take $50,000 from my HSA and $50,000 from my IRA and use them in combination to buy a property that each of them owns now 50% of. So, uh, Michael, for this question, as with for all dangerous uh, tax questions where the wrong advice could get you in a lot of trouble, I referred your question to one of my favorite IRA experts, John Heyer, who is an attorney out of the Columbus area, Uh, The reason that I often refer to John in these cases is because he has uh, recently developed a whole side business wherein he uh, defends people in tax court over things they've done in their IRA. So he has seen this sort of thing and uh, sort of, you know, understands it at a much deeper level. Plus, he's an attorney. So this is John's response. He says, the answer is neither. It's not directly prohibited It's theoretically doable, but in practice, it is also quite risky, just like you personally partnering with your IRA is quite risky. There are a lot of subtle ways to mess it up and to literally destroy both the IRA and the HSA. And by destroy, he means the IRS says, yeah, those don't exist anymore. And all of the tax savings you got by putting the money in and also all of the taxes you didn't pay on whatever growth they experienced are now due plus some penalties. Oh, plus we're going to, you know, drag you into court to, to prove all of this. So, so, so your, your IRA, whatever it is, is going to become much smaller and stop to uh, cease existing. And you're going to have a pile of cash in your hands that you didn't want in your hands at the end of this. They are prohibited parties as to one another. So any error, no matter how small, could cause a prohibited transaction and in turn blow both accounts. Best to partner or borrow with a non-prohibited person. So is it possible in theory? John says yes. Is it wise? John says no, because the the, the possibility that you're going to uh, unknowingly like like you, you didn't even tend to do anything wrong it all looked clean to you but there's some little minor minor technical thing that you do uh, the possibility of destroying effectively both of your IRAs could become a very serious problem for you in the future so anytime and I'm talking to all listeners now not just Michael anytime the uh, question comes up of, can I do this Do not uh, with your IRA? Do not believe that you are more clever than the Internal Revenue Service. Ask an expert if there is a way to do it. A true expert can, sh- can outline exactly how to do it. And there's going to be a lot of contracts involved. And there's going to be a, you know, lots, of, lots of paperwork back and forth between the parties and then do exactly what they say. Do not think it's okay to, well, just this once I'll write a check myself and get reimbursed from my IRA. Do it exactly right. Don't risk your IRA. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate. As you can tell, we are uh, having a lots a, a large number of uh, different kinds of questions here, which is perfectly fine. It keeps me on my toes and Uh, Hopefully educates listeners to even a greater degree. You can get your question in here at 877-772-9658 
or by sending it to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Question here from Dan, who doesn't say where he's from. Uh, Dan, uh, Dan says, this is a, uh, the subject line is wholesaling REO's question. Have you had situations where you needed to stretch out the contract timing with an REO bank before closing, presumably because you need more time to sell the property? Either way, what methods would you use to get more time to sell it if not sold within the standard 30 days other than intended attorney foot dragging? Uh, are there others? Well, a- actually, Dan, the the driving factor in contracts on bank-owned properties, that's what he means when he says REOs, is typically not the closing date. It's the end of the inspection period. Uh, you know, if a, a lot of folks do not wholesale REO properties for the simple reason that you may get a zero-day inspection period, you may get a five-day inspection period. There's hardly any circumstance under which you're going to get a 10-day inspection period on an REO property. So that's generally what I'm finding wholesalers get worried about on REOs because if, 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 they, if they can't find a buyer for the contract, they want to be out at day five or day 10. They're not worrying about what's going on at day 30 because they're already gone. Uh, I've bought a lot of REO properties over the years. My experience has generally been that they are not ready to close on the closing date. So uh, I, I don't know how, how often you've done this, but I, I, I would guess, I'd have to go back and look at my records, but I would guess that 80% of the time the closing date comes and goes and the bank is not ready to close on it. When they are ready to close on it, uh, unfortunately, there is probably a clause in the addendum. This is the case in most REO contracts that if you want to extend your closing date, you have to pay for that. $100 a day, $150 a day. And man, they are serious about that. I had a situation where I was buying a property in a land trust and the bank's title company, this wasn't even one that I chose, called like 24 hours before the scheduled closing and said, we need to see a copy of something, something, something. And I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was extremely unusual. It was not something that had, that had been requested before. It was not something that we could, we would normally have produced at that time. And it, would not, it was not something that we could produce on a moment's notice like that. So the closing ended up being delayed by three days because of their last minute request for a document. And when I got the closing statement, it had a $300 charge on it for closing late. And I screamed bloody murder. I, I said, this isn't right. I was ready to close. You guys, maybe it wasn't you, the bank, but it was your title company that you chose. Put a delay on this that I had no control over. And now you're trying to charge me $300. And uh, basically the word that came down from whomever asset manager, bank, whatever, was either you will pay the extra $300 or you will lose your earnest money and the contract will be withdrawn because somehow I broke the contract by them asking for something strange at the last possible moment. So, you know, on the one hand, most folks don't worry about the 30 days. They worry about the five or 10 days. On the other hand, it's often the case that the bank isn't ready to close after 30 days. And on the third hand, you trying to delay it in any way, including through an attorney is just likely to result in you having to pay penalties. So 
Um, I don't I don't think I would go too far in trying to figure out a way around that because in my experience there has not been a way around it. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate and we're coming up on a break but once again don't forget you can ask any question that you have today on Real Life Real Estate about real estate investing whether you are a new investor or a more experienced investor, you can do that by calling 877-772-9658 or by going to askvina.com and uh, filling in the response form there or by simply emailing it to askvina at gmail.com. If you do go to askvina.com, be sure to sign up for our weekly Real Life Real Estate e-letter, which will give you a heads up that both the show is coming up because I know... Wednesdays at 5 o'clock can be a busy time for people and you need that reminder that you need to tune into Real Life Real Estate Investing. And we'll also get you a weekly article about something that is going on out in the world of real estate investing. That's askvina.com. We will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am, in fact, Vina Jones-Cox. Today is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Uh, Waiting your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Again, any question that you might have in regards to real estate investing and all the things that are associated with it are welcome today on the last Wednesday of the month. Wholesalers in Ohio need to be aware of a newsletter that came out uh, this month from the Ohio Division of Real Estate in their spring newsletter. You can download a copy of this newsletter at www.com.ohio.gov forward slash documents. You know what? I'm just going to put this on our Facebook page because it goes on like another 900 letters from there. I'm going to put it on our Facebook page in the next couple of minutes. Uh, that is entitled Beware Seminars That Teach Unlicensed Real Estate Activities. This article was aimed at licensed real estate investors and basically uh, averts that wholesaling in Ohio is a uh, an activity that requires a real estate license, according to Ohio Revised Code Section 37, 4735.01. Wholesalers in the state of Ohio and other states have been aware for many years that revised codes require a real estate license for buying, selling, leasing, managing, etc. properties for others. The Division of Real Estate in Ohio has taken the position that wholesaling is doing that for others. Now, we could have a debate here for the next 45 minutes about whether putting your name on the bottom of a purchase contract so that you are the buyer of that property now makes you uh, somebody who's doing real estate for others. And I'm sure that that will be the subject of much debate with the division of real estate. But you need to be aware that the Ohio division has uh, taken the stand now in writing, uh, particularly before we answer our next question. Actually, it might be our second to next question because we this one came in via email and we have a caller on the line. So let's go ahead and talk first to David on line one in Cincinnati. David, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. How are you doing? Very good. How are you? Good, good. Um, I've got a, a question about property management. Um, I own five properties myself and I've, I've been managing them for, for quite a while, about five, ten years. 
And I've had several people approach me about managing their properties because, you know, they, they owned a house and then they had to move to Florida and weren't able to sell it. Um, and I have, uh, there's two of them that I'm doing now kind of as, as favorite of friends, but I'm considering actually expanding this into a business. Um, are there any special licenses or anything that I need to be aware of, uh, uh going into it? I mean, I, I understand all the ins and outs basically of, of managing a property because I have my own, but in terms of expanding it into a business and doing it for other people, I should say strangers, is there anything that I should be aware of? I am so glad you asked that, David, because yes, indeed, <laughs> there is a okay. there is one really, really, really big requirement, and that is you need to have a real estate license in order to really? yes you do in order to manage other people's properties and this is this is not an ohio thing there is no state that i'm aware of which i'm aware that you do not need a real estate license in order to manage properties for other people for a fee and there's there's actually even a little bit more to it than that uh the, obviously as a real estate agent you have to be working under a broker so it's actually the broker who would have the management contract with your friends and any money that is being taken in. If you're, if you're the one collecting the rent, maybe paying some of the bills and then sending the rest to your client, that has to be held in a special brokerage escrow account. So the rules around that are pretty voluminous. Now, okay. I, I, know, I know a number of people who are sort of out there just informally managing properties for other people. And it's kind of a, it's it's a matter of law that you have to have the license. It's kind of a matter of somebody telling somebody in order for that to come up as a as a topic. And when I talk to these folks who don't have licenses, they say, "Well, look, these are all my friends. I'm not really I'm not really concerned about them picking up the phone and calling the division of real estate and saying that I'm managing without a license because that's the way they want it." You have to remember there's another set of people involved here who can be surprisingly sophisticated, particularly when they don't want to pay their rent, and who can make that phone call. And that, of course, is the tenants. Okay. There are a lot of tenants out there who are very aware that you know, you're supposed to be a licensed property manager and whatnot, and who, uh, if the situation arises where you and they are having an argument about whether this month's rent is due, they can be the ones that become the problem. So I would recommend that uh, either you uh, go get your real estate license or that you don't proceed with this uh, because it is it can become very problematic for you as in fines of like $1,000 per day per instance. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, the way that I currently have it set up is that I don't handle any money. Um, I simply make the connection between the tenants and the people that own the house. If something arises, I use, you know, I the vendors that I've used for many of my own properties. And I say, you know, if they, they call me up and they say, Dave, the pipes leaked, I said, okay. I go ahead and I call my plumber. He goes over there, fixes it, and then he bills the owners. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't get any money. I mean, no money passes through me. Um, granted, the, the, the owners themselves pay me a fee. But I don't handle any of the money between the tenants and the landlord themselves. Right, which is, is that, that, that that's that's good because that way you cannot be accused of having mishandled the money. However, the law doesn't say you have to have a license if you handle money. It says you have to have a license if you are doing this for a fee. I see. Okay, and you are now. Let me let me before I before I let you go, I'm going to direct you to the Real Life Real Estate iTunes podcast. 
And I'm going to direct you to a show that where the guest was a fellow named David Tilney. Okay. Because they're depending on what the real goal of these owners is, like do they really want to hold on to the property forever, or is this a situation where they kind of like they had a property and they couldn't sell it, so they rented it and moved out of town and they'd really kind of prefer to sell it, but that just didn't happen because of the market. There are ways for you to become a principal in the transaction, uh, such as get a master lease against their property and say, look, I will pay you $550 every month and I will take care of repairs and maintenance and I will collect the rents from the tenants. But it is my rent I am collecting. It's not your rent because your rent is coming from me, not from your tenant. Uh, you, you can buy their houses subject to the existing loan. There, there are some other, there are some other ways to set up the transaction so that you are you are truly not managing for others for a fee because you are you are taking on some of the risk of uh, tenant doesn't pay. Guess what? Your payments still do. Okay. Right. So go check out David Tilney's uh, show, which then that, that has to have been you know three years ago. So scroll. There's like 200 shows up there. So scroll down okay. toward the bottom and you'll <laughs> you'll see it. Uh, okay. Or I assume there's some kind of search thing there where you can just look up David Tilney. But uh, there there are some other ways to do it. They're going to require uh, more sort of um, direct involvement in in the ownership of the property by you. But if the idea of going out and getting a real estate license so you can do this does not appeal to you, it's either that or don't manage other people's properties. Gotcha. Actually, it, it kind of does. And a, a quick follow-up question. Um, what, what's involved in getting my real estate license? Uh, are you in Ohio? Yeah, uh, I live in Kentucky. Okay. Uh, you're going to have to take a series of classes. I believe in Kentucky there were four of them. Uh, there's it's, it's a total of, it depends on what state you're in, but it's a, generally a total of between 25 and 35 hours per class but then there are three or four classes so you're going to be either sitting in a classroom or in states where you can get the information online you're going to be sitting in front of a computer for between 100 and 120 hours and then you find a broker who will sponsor you and you would you would need to sit down and interview some brokers and say that you know my plan is property management my plan is not to generate a bunch of listings for this office and then uh, the broker signs a piece of paper you take a test you pass it you become part of the local association of realtors and uh, you work under the broker so it's uh, it's it's, you know it's a little time consuming not horribly so a little bit expensive not horribly so but uh, there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of actual schools around that that teach classes for realtors. Some of the community colleges do as well, and some of the big brokerages actually will let you have the classes for nearly free if you are going to end up being an agent for their brokerage. So you might want to check some of the big brokers that I cannot mention on the air because we're on public radio, but you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Great. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Hey, great. Glad to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Uh, Very good. Thank you for your call, David. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. We do now have the link to the Ohio Division of Real Estate's newsletter posted on Facebook. The site is facebook.com forward slash real life real estate. And it's right up there at the top if you would like to read that entire newsletter uh, article for yourself. Um, please don't send me a hundred emails about how it's not right and they've got it all wrong and 
how how dare they do this and this is just protection of real estate agents uh, i've already had all of those emails i get it we will uh, let you know what is going on uh as this thing progresses because it has it has become a a real issue um with some wholesalers here in ohio and uh things will happen over the next few months and we will talk about it as they do uh, Anthony from Ohio says, Vina, in your opinion, how does real estate compare to the MLM business model? I'm having a problem deciding whether to focus on wholesaling and real estate, either houses or notes, or a greeting card MLM company. I want to earn some part-time income, and I'm not sure what would be the best option. Please provide some insight. Oh, my gosh, Anthony. You are asking someone who has been a full-time real estate investor for 25 years to tell you whether to do real estate or do an MLM. And I, I'm getting my brain around an argument that I could make for a multi-level marketing business model. Uh, it's a little bit of an apples and oranges question. And, 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 and I don't mean real estate versus MLMs. I mean MLMs versus other MLMs is, a, is an apples and, apples and orange question. Uh, the multi the multi level marketing companies have such huge differences in their compensation schemes, in the quality of the product, and how easy it's going to be to uh, sell, as it were, in how long they have been around. I've seen a number of friends get into MLMs that were newer and had these apparently fantastic compensations and were out of business in a year. So everything that the folks in the downline had done to build their line was all, you know, for nothing. The company just went belly up. Um, there's some good ones out there. There's some bad ones out there. There's some that are easier to sell, harder to sell. There's some that give you better training, not so great training. There's some that I cannot understand the compensation schemes. Even when they draw me a picture, I can't figure out how much money I would be making if I did such and so. I think what you have to what you have to ask yourself is which one has the more proven long-term track record? How long have MLMs been around and how long has real estate been making people rich? Now, the one thing that they do have in common is that the pitches out there for getting into it both tend to imply that it's going to be really easy and all you have to do is buy this starter pack and pretty soon you'll be buying and selling whatever in your sleep, whether it's greeting cards or real estate. And none of that is true. Uh, the people I know that have done very well in MLMs have worked their rear ends off, often for years on end, to get that ultimate passive income that they're looking for. The people that I know that are in the real estate business have worked their rear ends off. If they are full-time real estate investors making a lot of money, they have done a lot of work to get there. So um, they, they sort of sound similar when you're hearing them pitched, but my heart is with real estate because the guy who owned the land has had all the money since pretty much time immemorial, right? But it was an interesting question, Anthony, and one that I have not had before. So I do very much appreciate you asking. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can send in your questions to 877-772-9658. Of course, you wouldn't send it there. You would call that number, 877-772-9658, or send it in to askvina at gmail.com. 
Welcome back to Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We also, by the way, welcome any topic or guest suggestions that you might have anytime during Question and Answer Week. You would not believe what an issue it is to uh, book approximately 50 shows a year with new and different and interesting guests and topics. So we're always looking for listener help on that. If you have any suggestions for speakers or topics, uh, you can send those to askvina at gmail.com as well. If you think there's something that you'd like to know more about or that we haven't covered or it's just so it's just so interesting, we should do yet another show about it. Go ahead and send that to askvina at gmail.com, and I will certainly look into that. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I've got a product I'd like to sell to Real Life Real Estate's audience, please do remember that we are on public radio. This is not a webinar. This is not web radio. This is actually going out over the airwaves, and the FCC has certain rules about public radio, like you can't promote stuff. So uh, if that's your big plan... um, might want to keep that one to yourself because we can't do it. Uh, question here from Michelle again about wholesaling. She says, for wholesaling, I always work to get my assignment fee paid before assigning my contract as opposed to getting paid at closing, doing a double closing, or other method. I understand the importance of this because I lose my protection to get paid once, I, once I've assigned my contract, and it's also the most cost-efficient method. I would add to that, Michelle, that if you assign your contract before receiving your uh, your assignment fee, you have given away the thing that was your intention to sell. As a as a wholesaler, the thing that you have is an interest in this property via the purchase contract. As some legal experts would argue, a principal. The Ohio Division of Real Estate doesn't seem to understand that, but the legal experts I've spoken to say that you are a principal in the transaction. Once you have assigned that contract to someone else, they are now the principal. And yes, they can go forward to closing, but you no longer have the one thing that you had to market. And now, uh, yes, you would have to probably go to court and sue to get your assignment fee if they went ahead and closed and did not ultimately pay you. The rest of the question is, I almost always have buyers say they won't pay before closing, even though the assignment agreement addresses their concern. Now, what Michelle is referring to here, folks, is that the assignment agreements typically say that if for some reason the seller cannot perform, the other principal in the contract cannot perform, that the uh, assignment fee would be refunded to the buyer. And I completely understand why buyers don't feel especially protected by that, Michelle, because they don't know you. You know, they just handed you $3,000, $5,000, whatever, and you're saying, sure, I'll give it back to you if you... If, if the seller can't come to closing. I had a student with a situation like that yesterday where the seller had a ton of liens that the seller didn't even know about because he had inherited the property and hadn't bothered to do a title search and just was not able to deliver clear title. So I understand where the buyers are coming from on this. They're saying, I don't want to give you any money because they're not going to say this out loud, but I don't know that you're not going to spend it and not be able to give it back to me. And then I can't close because of the other principal. And now I'm stuck just having walked away from all of this money. So I I get that concern. 
But the next piece of it that you're, that you're asking here should take care of that. Uh, some people agree to escrow, but on occasion I've lost a serious and experienced buyer that wanted to purchase just because they were too nervous about paying a fee in advance. Do you have any general advice for this issue? And would you at least require them to pay the escrow fees since they are the one that wants it? And the answer is absolutely yes. The perfect solution to... I need you to pay me money for the thing I am selling you because I'm not selling you a house. I don't have a house. I have a contract on a house. I am selling you the rights embodied in that contract and I need to be paid for that and not when and if you buy the house. I need to be paid now because I'm not selling the house. This is not contingent upon me selling a house because I don't have a house. I have a contract and the contract is what gives what gives me the right which I am transferring to you to buy under this uh, the, the, this price and terms. So you're on that side of it. Your buyer's on the side of it of, oh, but what if? What if there's no closing because, not because I decided not to buy it, but because the seller couldn't or wouldn't sell it. And escrow is a great way to deal with that, right? You, 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 have the, you have the buyer put the money with a title company or with a real estate agent, although the Division of Real Estate warned real estate agents that if they participate in wholesale deals that they could be disciplined in that newsletter. So maybe we can't hold things in escrow with real estate agents anymore. Uh, title company or attorney, let's say. And there's instructions with that. And the instructions say, Michelle has assigned this contract to Joe Blow over here. And Joe agrees to take on all the rights and responsibilities in this contract. And Joe agrees that this money will be released at such time as either the deal closes or on the date that it was supposed to close, with the exception being the seller can't or won't transfer title, in which case Joe gets the money back. That way there's this 30 party out there that is legally bound by this escrow agreement to distribute the money just as the escrow agreement says. And that seems like the perfect solution. Now, a buyer who says, I don't care if it's being held by an attorney, I don't even care if it's being held by my attorney, I just, I'm just nervous about giving this money up front. I would very strongly question how serious that buyer was about buying. And I don't care how serious and experienced he is. My guess would be he didn't have the money and couldn't put it up. Because when you have somebody with an escrow account, not, not just an account called escrow, but like an actual capital E escrow account, like an attorney or a title company, it's not like they can, it's not like you can walk in one afternoon and say, I decided to get that money, give it to me. And they can give it to you. They can't do that. They have to follow the escrow agreement. I've had people that have done that same thing and said, no, I, I don't want to pay it and I don't want to put it in escrow. And ultimately it has turned out that they were borrowing 100% of the money for the purchase and rehab and that their private lender wouldn't turn over them, but they just didn't have it. That was the bottom line. So yeah, I mean, there might be some buyers that you have to walk away from because they can't meet the policies of your business. I can tell you something that'll make it a lot easier for you though. If what, he, if what the buyer is concerned about is really and honestly that, you know, maybe the title's going to turn out not to be clear, get a title search first. Get a title search before you start saying, trade me this agreement for this money. Uh, because if the title search is, is done by a real title company and it's insurable and you've got the, you know, all the stuff they send with you to say, you know, we're going to insure it under these conditions, then it's pretty much ready to close, right? There's nothing stopping him from closing except potentially his own lack of money. If you get the title search first and say, 
Now what's the problem? Seller's ready to close, title search is done. What's the problem? Uh, and they still say, well, I just don't do that. Well, I would think I would have to question whether or not they actually have the money. So a uh, very good question, Michelle, and one that I know is shared by a lot of folks. And in fact, many wholesalers uh, have it as their policy that they do, in fact, assign the contract and then wait until closing or after closing to get their money. And my arg- my um, non-professional, non-legal opinion in regards to that versus the Division of Real Estate's recent stance on wholesaling would be that pretty much proves that what you're selling is the property, right? You 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 didn't you didn't put together a deal and then sell the deal because it clearly was contingent upon the closing of the property because that's when you received the money, not when you assigned the contract. So I would say that might be a bigger issue for you in the future than just sticking to your guns and finding buyers that, uh, I don't know, understand things like how this works. A question here from Bob. He says, is there, uh, there is an REO company by me that has been vacant for a long time. Well, REO property by me that has been vacant for a long time. I actually walked through it when it was first listed for sale, but it is no longer listed. And the listing agent was of no help in getting me in touch with an asset manager. I know the bank that owns it, but I am not sure how to go about getting in touch with the asset manager. Any suggestions in tracking him or her down? Uh, Bob, I think you might be looking in the wrong place because if that listing got pulled off the market and is still sitting there, vacant, no sign in front of it, agent can't seem to help you with the asset manager, there is an excellent chance that that property was packaged up into a big pool of REO properties and sold off to some hedge fund somewhere. And it is entirely likely that even if you were able to track down the asset manager for this very large bank that you're talking about, uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you much because they are no longer in possession of the property. So Uh, The question would be, so this was an REO, it was not a short sale. The question would be, how do you find out who might have bought the package of properties? And the only thing that I can tell you to do is go direct to the REO department at the bank. Say, there's this particular property. I believe that you have packaged and sold it. And I need to know who to because it's my next door property and the grass is long and I'm getting very concerned about it. And I really need to talk to whoever's in charge. I think you're going to find out that it probably is part of a larger package that got sold off someplace else. Uh, And thank you very much for your question, Bob, Michelle, David, all the great folks who asked questions today. Uh, We're going to be back next week, as always, with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.